0: Financial planning services offered through Jim Saulnier and Associates LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA show coming to you from beautiful Northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein. Teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show whether you are listening live in colorado or streaming from their website or itunes podcast jim and chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement just visit their website at jimhelps.com that's jim h-e-l-p-s.com and click the meet the team button on the homepage. now here's jim and chris with today's show Well, hello
2: and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Got a big bag of questions that Jim's rifling through as I speak here. He'll be sharing them with us momentarily. Um, If you want to send in your own questions, I'll just get that away while he's digging up a few for us to do. Just send an email with your question directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Make sure in the subject line you indicate it's a question for the podcast. The more direct, succinct you can be, um, the greater the chance you'll get your question answered on the show. Um, But sometimes we do longer questions. just kind of depends on what's going on on a given day. So um, we appreciate everybody listening. And I'll bring in Jim now and see uh, if he's dug some stuff up for us to cover here on today's fine show.
3: Of course I did. You know that. Figured. I'm always having the questions. Figured you would. Of course, of course. Um, no Irma today. Two Social Security questions. So there's a little curveball. we um kind of running out of Irma questions, and I think it was Irma's. Not nearly as complicated as Social Security, but if somebody has any IRMA-related questions, again, you can send them in, and we'll try to get them on the show. Uh, so I thought I would do two Social Security questions. I think I have a easy and moderately easy question. Which one would you want
2: first? <laughs> well, let's ease well, that's into it. it. Let's Let's start out with an easy question first.
3: You want the easy question. Okay. Even I knew the answer to this one. So if I knew it, it's going to be easy for you. All righty. He is from... No hint, but the state is California. I guess I could have thought of something from California as a hint, but uh, he's from California. All right. He writes, Thanks. Thank you, Jim and Chris. I never get tired of listening to both of you on the podcast. Hmm. I have a quick question. Is a Roth conversion subject to the Social Security earnings test? Hmm. I can't find a straight answer anywhere. I started to receive Social Security in 2022. But I did a Roth conversion of $50,000 in 2023. My full retirement age isn't until June of 2024. But am I correct to say only wages and net earnings from self-employment will count as earnings and subjecting me to Social Security's earnings test? And that the rest of income, such as pension payments Annuity payments, dividends, interest, capital gain, and IRA distributions, and I will throw in there, Chris, IRA conversions, are not considered earnings subjecting me to the earnings test. Mm -hmm. Thank you for all you do. He gave his real name, which is a unique real name. I, I wish we shared names on here. I like his name. I've never seen a name like that. Cool name. But we'll call him
2: George. Well, George, I've got good news. I can confidently confirm that those Roth conversions that you're, you've done, maybe considering more, have no play no part in the earnings test. The earnings test is all based on wages from work, whether it's you working for someone else or you're self-employed. Wages from work is really what it should be called rather than the earnings test. Uh, Because all those other income sources you mentioned, cap gains, IRA distributions, 401k distributions, pensions, interest income, annuity payments, you know, anything down this list that's not wages from work does not factor into the earnings test. Now, those of you subject to the earnings test, once you reach your full retirement age, which he does, says, I think he said June of 2024 here. Uh, earnings test goes away completely in that month. Um, but, uh, yeah, Roth convert to your heart's content will not affect your earnings test calculation.
3: Told you this was an easy one. Yeah, that was a good one. Now we'll get to the moderately easy one. There are a lot of numbers in this one, Chris, when I get to it, let me know if you want me to actually read the numbers, if that's going to be helpful for you, uh, or, uh, listeners. Or if you can just kind of answer his general question without all the numbers. Okay. 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 He gives a hint. Um, actually, he is a she. Let me make sure. This is a Georgette. I'm sorry. She gives a state hint. I did not know the answer to this one. I'm going to guess you probably won't know it either. But I could be totally wrong. And again, we don't vet this, but this is what this listener said. State hint. My state is home to the first state park ever in the nation. Not national park, state park. Hmm. Hmm, That's what I said. Hmm. And I want the state, I figured.
2: Is it something no one would ever guess?
3: Well, I didn't guess it. You've got a one out of 50 chance.
2: Uh, I'll tell
3: you why I didn't pick up on. That's why I went out of my way. Even though I read state in my head, I thought National Park. So I instantly went out west and totally blew it.
2: Let's go with Maine.
3: Is there a reason you chose Maine?
2: No. (laughs) just came to me.
3: (laughs) Uh, You're right in the sense it is east of the Mississippi and along the Atlantic seacoast. But according to this listener, folks the state that created the first ever state park, Georgia. I would have never guessed that. Interesting. Yeah.
2: There's okay. something new every day on the Retirement
3: and IRA show. You do. Your podcast is my number one pick. Blatant flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> Your podcast is my number one pick of the many financial podcasts I listen to. And here's the neat thing, Chris. Ever since you were on the radio, I love your rabbit holes. This Georgette, either she lived in Colorado a long time ago because, gosh, hasn't it been like 10 years since we were off the radio? Maybe. Or more, right? God, I think it has. Yeah. Um, We used to be a radio show, folks, and we just started putting the radio show on iTunes (laughs) is where we started. So our listeners in Colorado could hear us whenever they had an opportunity to listen to us. And then people throughout the nation started picking up on it. I never thought when I had uh, my – in fact, it was Joe, our admin at the time, Chris. It was her whole idea to do this. Just throw it on iTunes and then your Colorado listeners can, can download it and listen to it whenever they want. And to me, because I'm not techie like you are, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Really? Anytime they want, they can listen to it? So maybe she was always in Georgia and she just found it randomly. Or maybe she used to actually live in Colorado and started following us on the radio. But that's, this is a long-time listener. Okay, here's her question. My spousal benefit will be higher than my personal benefit talking about Social Security folks. So I was looking at my husband's most recent Social Security statement to get an idea of what I might expect to receive. We both turned 62 this year, and this came to us in 2024, Chris. My husband is not sure when he will retire, but will definitely wait until 70 My to collect. My husband earns above the income limit that is taxed for social security and has earned more than that limit for 27 years. But he has low earning years due to education and his medical training. So I'm guessing this is a physician and during his very extensive education and very extensive, um, what do they call that residency? Mm He wasn't contributing to Social Security and was earning less than the annual maximum earnings limit. Okay. Then she lists what he will receive between, according to Social Security, between sixty-two and seventy. Do you need those dollars amount, or do you want me to just jump to the rest of her question? What? What's her question?
2: There's not a question yet.
3: (laughs) Okay. So. She did a screenshot from Social Security's website that shows what the husband will receive if he claims at 62 all the way to 70. So 62, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 70 all laid out. And then she did a screenshot of a disclosure that Social Security put. These personalized estimates above Are based on your earnings to date and assume you continue to earn $147,000 per year until you start your benefits. And her question I don't understand how they came up with $147,000 he needs to keep earning in order to receive the benefits they are indicating. I thought he would need to earn. 35 years of income above the maximum social security limit which is currently 168,600. Can you please clarify this? I don't think you need the individual numbers, but let me know if you do.
2: No, cuz I know where that 147 comes from. The 147 was the social security wage cap, the maximal maximum taxable earnings for 2022. So when you look at your Social Security benefit estimate statement, they're making a few assumptions when they're telling you uh, what your benefit will be off into the future. And one of those assumptions is you're going to continue earning what you earned last year um, all the way until you retire and claim, not not till you retire, but till you claim your benefits. So when they're showing you an age 70 benefit, they're going to assume that you are going to earn what you made last year all the way until age 70. So they're essentially pre-populating your earnings record with more years than you currently have today, uh, assuming you keep working at your current earnings level. And where that 147 comes in, they're using that as uh, her husband's number because that's the maximum that's actually going into the earnings record because he's above the maximum. So the 147 is there. So on one hand, you might be saying, well, the limit increases over time, and they're assuming 147. Uh, That's technically true, but the estimates they're giving you are all in today's dollars. They're assuming no wage inflation and other types of inflation happening. They're not building in, oh, this age 70 benefit is assuming there's going to be 3% average inflation with cost of living adjustments. They're not making any of those things. So these dollars they're giving you, they're keeping them in today's terms in order to make them uh, easier for most people to to have context for them or, or, you know, related to their current view of finances might be a way of saying it. So it is, you know, reasonable for them to be using that one forty seven assumption. And it's literally based on that. What you made last year, we're going to project into the future. Now, if you don't have earnings last year, they're going to look back two years ago and use that number. And if you don't have earnings for the past two years, they're going to assume you have no more earnings until you claim. So, What's happened in the past year or two is going to possibly noticeably affect the benefit estimates, which is one reason I usually encourage people to use uh, one of the online tools to calculate your benefit estimate and not use the Social Security statement that they spit out, because the assumptions that they're making, and I mentioned one, well, a couple here, that you're going to continue to make what you made last year all the way till when you claim, and secondly, that there's going to be no further wage inflation in the future, those may or may not be reasonable assumptions for your circumstances so um, but, but that's where that's coming from so that she can count on those benefits that are being estimated there are assuming um, kind of continuing to work at his current earnings level all the way until he claims um, but if there's inflation on anything, which increases the limit it obviously already has because the new limit is 168600 which is what she just uh um you know kind of spouted off in here and I think that is correct I'm going to pull it up here yeah 2024 the limit's 168600 already well above the 147 number um so we've already proven their assumptions wrong in in uh you know in reality here, because we know how the the years twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four evolved. But the statement's given you a rough estimate, uh we'll call it, of what your benefit might be. Uh but that's where they pulled that one forty seven. Makes you know sense uh, when you know what they're assuming. Okay, perfect. I like it. All righty. So I'm trying to
3: decide if we should do the new question of the week or the annuity question or the regular retirement question. Let's do the new question of the week first. Um, Where the heck did it go? Right there. Okay. This one, Chris, I think is going to be more art than science. He doesn't give enough information to let me know what. He's using his CD ladder four, but I think we can give him a little bit of some guidance and then uh, he can take it from there. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. See if he gives a hint. All right. Oh, this this is probably one of the hardest questions, excuse me, hints we've received. I, I'm going to guess you're not going to get this. Mm-hmm. I totally don't think you're going to get it. It was a good question. i got to give this guy credit for looking this one up. I had to Google it. Um, so do not Google. Sit sit your hands down, uh, your hiney down on your hands, and uh, no Googling this, and see if you can get it. Jim and Chris, I love your show. To, devo- to avoid delay answering my question, let me give you my hint now. A lot of people put the hint at the bottom of the email. He's putting it right at the top. I like that. I live in a state that begins with a T ends with an S, and has an X in the middle. I had to Google this, but I eventually found the answer. But Chris, can you guess the state? Begins with a T, ends with an S, and
2: has an X in the middle. This guy's hilarious. hilarious. It is, in fact, Texas, and he clearly wants us to move on quickly to his question, so (laughs) that's all I'll say.
3: It's all cute. All right. I have a question on CD ladders and how they should work. There is a concept in investing equal amounts of money for every maturity uh, ladder or step, rather, excuse me. For example, 5,000 in five different CDs that mature in five-year increments. Now, I don't know if he's talking about putting, I'm guessing, and this is hard because of the way he worded it. 5,000 in a one year CD, a two year CD, a three, a four, and a five because he can't be, you can't buy a 25 year CD. So he's talking about five different CDs that mature in five year increments. Do you think he's talking one, two, three, four, five as in one, two, three, four, five year or buying a five, 10, 15, 20, and 25 year? Do you have, what are say. your thoughts? Yeah, Chris? I don't know. So we're going to assume as we answer this question, he's not talking about running out and buying a 25-year. I don't even know if you can buy a 25-year CD. So let's just assume what he means, listeners, using a very simple example, a five-year CD ladder. Buying a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year CD right away with $5,000 in each rung of the ladder. And when you are laddering, whether you're laddering CDs or laddering bonds, individual bonds, or now the defined outcome or defined maturity ETFs that make this even easier. When you're trying to do something like that, the intent is you can create it all at once. And usually, and he doesn't share Chris, this is, again, what makes this a little bit difficult, what he's trying to do. Is he just trying to create a very safe liquidity ladder? And that's where my gut tells me he's going with this. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when we create a ladder for someone, it's a, either a way to maintain a very liquid, very safe kind of liquidity ladder that's going to provide kind of an emergency reserve for some people, if you will. That, hey, I'm going to put $25,000 off to the side in his example. I'm going to put $25,000 off to the side. This is for me, but geez, a a three-year, four-year, a five-year bond is yielding more than I can get in my bank right now or in a a money market. And I'm going to create this ladder. Every year, $5,000 is going to mature. And if I need it, I take it. If I don't, I just take that money and buy a new five-year CD because next year, the next annuity matures and the next annuity. I'm going to have to assume that's what he's creating this ladder for. But if he is a podcast listener, maybe, Chris, he's trying to create a ladder for spending. We call it a spending ladder. When we work with people if we're helping them manage their assets folks, we create spending ladders usually to fund go-go spending. Just one example of where we might use what we call a spending ladder. Or we create a spending ladder for what we call the minimum dignity floor or MDF delay uh, period. That's the period of time where we're waiting For them to turn on their social security, they're delaying their full social security benefit. Hence, we call it the delay period. And because we have an end date, it generally ends at age 70. And we know when it starts, it generally starts at retirement. Let's just say they're going to retire at 65. So this particular person would have a five-year ladder, if you will. And after running the analysis for someone, we know approximately how much they're going to need each year for the next five years. So some people will use CDs, some might use uh, tips, but he's talking about CDs. So it wouldn't be a flat $5,000 each year. It might be 10,000 the first year, but the projection shows he's going to need 18,000 in, in year two for some reason, and then 13,000 in year three, so on and so forth, folks. So that's what we call a spending ladder, but it works in the same manner, except your intent is not to take the maturing CD money and repurchase another rung in the ladder. This ladder is designed to expire at the end of the delay period. So if your delay period is five years, it's a five-year ladder. If it's 10 years, it could be a 10-year ladder. Did I explain that well, Chris, what ladders might be and where you might conceptually use it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, because he doesn't share with us how he uses it, but then he asks his question. But a CD that matures in five years from now will provide interest payment over the previous four years. It will provide more income than the four year CD, or in other words, more interest than the four year CD. Theoretically, yes. We kind of have an inverted yield curve right now, but a traditional yield curve, yes. A five year CD should yield more than a four year CD, which should yield more than a three year CD, so on and so forth. So a CD that matures four years from now will provide interest payments over the next three years and he says etc 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 so what do i do with all this cash flow as we plan our income needs so i'll let you opine on this chris but back to the two examples as well that i listed if you are just create well Before we get into this, because he's specifically talking about CDs, folks, if you're buying bank CDs at your local bank, you might be sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, just tell the bank to reinvest the interest in the CD and let it compound, and you won't have these cash flows constantly coming out. I fully agree, and I want to make mention of that to this listener. You seem to be concerned with the interest payments, and you don't know what to do with it. If you are buying traditional bank CDs where you walk down the street and walk into your local bank and buy the CD directly from the bank, those CDs can be set to reinvest the interest and let it compound. Problem solved. So my gut tells me, folks, and Chris, he's talking about a brokered CD. I'm guessing he's a VG, a do-it-yourselfer. He has access to a brokerage platform i don't know which one and the brokerage platform lists fdic insured bank cds on their platform most custodians that i know of don't even charge an outright fee or commission to purchase them now they are compensated by banks to list them on their exchange So trust me, the custodians being paid, most likely it's a yield spread type pay. In other words, the bank is saying, hey, we're going to pay. I'm just going to use this as an example number. I'm not implying anything, folks. We're going to pay the client 5%. And we're going to pay you 10 bips. So we're going to give the client 500 basis points. We're going to give you 10 basis points to list the CD. Now, obviously, if they didn't have to pay the custodian, maybe they would be willing to give you 5.1%. That's called the yield spread. So trust me, the custodian is making money. But that's why, to the best of my knowledge, no custodian overtly charges you a commission to buy the CD, the brokered CD. The bank is compensating them. But you are paying in a roundabout way with lower interest. But unique about brokered CDs, folks. The interest is not reinvested. It's paid out. So my gut tells me, Chris, he's talking about brokered CDs. Mm -hmm. So far, so good?
2: Yeah, I agree agree with that assumption.
3: Okay. So he's asking, what do you do with these interest payments? This is the very question I asked, not to his face because I never met the man. To Alan Roth, a gentleman named Alan Roth who probably knows more about investing than I ever will. But he's a huge proponent of tips. And I like to listen to him talk as often as I can. And that's not very often. But he loves tips. And he did a presentation when the ETFs came out of um, the defined maturity ETFs dedicated to tips. And he was talking about how he creates a tips ladder. Now, that's different than a CD ladder, but conceptually works the same. He creates these ladders for his clients, not as a reserve account, my first example of what you might create a ladder for, but my second example to fund specific spending for his clients. And I asked him, you had to go into the chat feature. I said, hey, when you're buying an individual tip, the actual tip bond or in this listener's question, if you're buying a brokerage CD, reinvesting the interest back into the tips bond is impossible and reinvesting the interest back into that very brokerage CD is impossible. So I asked him in his, my email question, how do you account for the interest payments? Is it, invested off to the side in a money market account or some other type of account designed to pay out at the same time that the main CD, or in Alan's case, the main tip bond matures? Or do you consider it part of the cash flow your client is going to receive, thereby allowing you to theoretically put less money in the tips themselves because you know you're gonna be getting additional cash flow each year. He chose the latter, not the former. He said he builds it into the cash flow needs. I personally don't like that. Now, Alan's a hell of a lot smarter on this than I am, and I'm sure he's got Excel spreadsheets and all this other stuff that, that he amazes or probably excels at. To me, that adds a lot of complexity to a rather simple approach, a ladder. That's why, personally, I was ecstatic when BlackRock came out with those defined maturity ETFs tied to TIPS, Treasury Inflation protected Security. And we're not going to get into that on this answer. We did a whole couple of shows on this. But it allows us to easily reinvest those dollars right into the tips ladder that we're creating because I don't want to befuddle everything with all this variable income stream coming in. So my answer, very long-winded answer to this gentleman, either buy bank CDs where you can reinvest the interest or if you're buying brokered CDs, you might want to just take those dollars and reinvest them every quarter or every month on your own. You can invest them in an additional CD designed to mature around the same time your other CDs are maturing. But That would just make it complex. I would invest it and we use, I'm not going to give the name, but we use an exchange-traded fund that creates on their own, not as a defined outcome, but an imperpetuity ladder of three-month treasury bills. That's all it does. It creates a treasury bill ladder. It has one-month treasury bills, two-month treasury bills, and three-month. And as the one-month one matures, it goes out and buys a three-month treasury bill with it. Of course, there's going to be cash flow coming in and out of the ETF as well that they're adjusting for in the background. But it's quick. It's painless. It's easy. It's completely liquid. It's creating another ladder, just a very shorter-term ladder. It's right now yielding about 5%. Because short-term interest rates are higher than long-term rates. I don't know how much longer that's going to last for, but we still have a semi-inverted yield curve. And it's just quicker and easier for us. So that's how we kind of handle it, listener and listeners in general. Again, if you don't want to deal with this interest cash flow coming in and having to reinvest it, um, these defined maturity ETFs that are tied to either TIPS or regular treasuries could work perfect. Or simply take the brokerage CD interest that's coming all the time and invest it in a very liquid style ETF, similar. I'm not saying you have to go out and buy uh, an ETF that that creates a three-month treasury bill ladder, but that's just what we found convenient. You do your own research and due diligence or do what Alan Roth does, build it into your cash flow needs. But you never really shared with us. Are you trying to create an emergency reserve? Are you just going to keep rolling the five thousand dollars each year if you don't need it? Or are you trying to create a spending ladder for a specific tasks? All right. What are your thoughts, Chris, if you have any?
2: No, I think it all depends on what he's trying to accomplish. He didn't that's I wish he would have started with. I'm trying to get this, this, and that accomplished. Is this the best way to do it? Um because it's hard to judge uh, or or share with him kind of an optimal approach when we don't know what the goal is. But it can be if you've got income coming out, like these brokered CDs, you've got to figure out a way how you're going to factor that in. And there are some Excel spreadsheet tools I know that are out there. I don't personally use one, but I've seen them that will do these calculations for you and build the ladders uh, to include the interest coming out uh, for the ones that are being held for, say, the five-year period or what, what have you. And you'll figure out your cash flow needs in each and every year. And it'll tell you the combination of CDs that you're going to ladder in order to accomplish that effectively. So uh, those tools exist. I think that's. I think there's other approaches that might be a little more straightforward and easier to implement these days. Um, so I'm not a, a huge fan of that. Uh, but th- those do exist if you want to kind of go that route.
3: Yes, and if you're trying to create this with tips, uh, we spoke about this. I've never been to this website, literally, never used it, but Alan Roth spoke highly of it. Podcast listeners have shared links to it repeatedly, Mm -hmm. and I've read about it uh, recently in a couple of, I can't remember which one, so I don't want to just shouting out names, but a couple of the the press that I follow uh, referenced this website, Uh, tipsladder.com. Which I think was just started by just a DIY of VG engineer type geek, and it's just really caught on. Mm-hmm. But it helps you create ladders. I do not know how it handles the reinvestment of the uh, actual tips bonds being generated, the interest, but you might want to check that out. But um, yes, you have to. It, it is a uh, difficulty handling the interest. That's why it's called the reinvestment risk. Um, When you create your own ladders, whether you're using brokerage CDs that are paying out the interest, tip bonds that are paying out the interest, and it's incredibly difficult to go back and buy a tip bond with just a couple of thousand dollars and get a reasonable price on it, but that's the reinvestment risk, if you will, of owning individual bonds, But by owning individual bonds or individual brokered CDs, you know if I just hold it to its maturity date, I'm getting my money back. As opposed to owning an open-ended mutual fund that invests in bonds or ETF that invests in bonds. If it's non-defined maturity, there's no guarantee you're going to get your money back when you need it because of the mark-to-market rules of individual bonds that are going to be held forever by these ETFs or mutual funds. It's going to go up in value, down in value, depending on what interest rates are doing. There's no defined maturity. So when you need the money, you might get more, you might get less. That's not really good. It's wonderful to use those. ETFs and mutual funds, I call them the the non-defined maturity or into perpetuity uh, type of investments. It's great to use that in the accumulation phase, not so great in the distribution phase, where you need that surety that I need my money when I need it. So that's why creating ladders comes in handy. But they're, they're not overly easy. If you want bank CDs, though... Go to your local bank and and reinvest everything, and that will work, and we'll go on from there. Okay. Do you want to do the annuity question next or the financial planning question next? I'm easy. I'll let you choose.
2: Well, annuity oh, starts with A, so let's a, do, that so
3: that we'll do that one. Okay. All right. Hello from a loyal listener. I am from the state that has the fourth largest numbers – Of national parks. The fourth largest? The fourth largest. He says, here is an additional clue for Chris. My state has four national parks. And last clue for Chris, if he can get this, and I'm not going to give the last clue, I'll see. Take a guess. And if you don't guess it, I'm going to give the last clue to you so he has the state with the fourth largest number of national parks which just happens to be four national parks and don't google it
2: florida is there a
3: reason you chose florida
2: not a super good reason <laughs>
3: uh no so here's his last hint to help you get it if you, too, don't get this, but I already know the answer, this should help you. Chris should move back to Wyoming and Jim move back to Massachusetts if you don't get this.
2: This must be Colorado.
3: Colorado. According to him, he lives in Colorado. I contemplated I did know Colorado.
2: That. I contemplated Colorado, but I thought, I don't know. I overthought it probably.
3: And I couldn't even come up with four. I mean, there's Dinosaur National Park.
2: Yep. Rocky Mountain the National Sandy, Park.
3: Rocky Mountain, the Sandy Dunes. Isn't yep. that a national park?
2: I think it is.
3: But and what's the fourth I one? Think I have that, no idea. Uh,
2: I think it's that canyon, Black Canyon.
3: Is it? Okay. I'll have to see. I know there's Dinosaur and the, the mm. Sand Dunes. I haven't been to Dinosaur or the Sand Dunes. I need to go there. been mm. to Rocky Mountain National Park all the time. That's where I hike. Okay. My question, you and other financial advisors have discussed the potential problems of single premium immediate annuities from insurance companies owned by private equity insurance companies. While I personally do not need a single premium immediate annuity soon, I will at some point. And I'm worried if I pass away because my wife will need several immediate annuities right away. So how do we find out which companies are owned by private equity insurance companies? I really do enjoy your show and appreciate the information and your side banter. I have to clarify one thing.
2: Dinosaur is a national monument. The fourth one, I was right about Black Canyon, but the fourth Mm -hmm. one is not dinosaur. It's Mesa Verde.
3: Wow. Okay. I always call Mesa Verde just Mesa Verde. So it's a national park.
2: Yep. National park and Dinosaur is a national monument, which is it? still well worth the visit.
3: Okay. Well, I hope to go to both those places. Yeah. But Mesa Verde, I've just always called Mesa Verde. I nobody yeah. ever. Everybody says Rocky Mountain National Park, but nobody's well, really if you says stopped Mesa at Rocky Verde. Mountain, they wouldn't park. know what
2: you're talking about, because <laughs> that stretches from Canada to Mexico. <laughs>
3: True. I mean, we just always say, hey, you want to go to Rocky Mountain National Park? Mm -hmm. But if we're going to go to Mesa Verde, hey, you want to go to Mesa Verde? You don't Mm -hmm. say you want to go to Mesa Verde National Park? I know, weird. Okay. Anyways, back to this guy's question. That's a very good question. Let's kind of give a little backdrop to this. I don't want to go too deep into it. But when you are buying a lifetime stream of guaranteed income, you always will hear something to the effect of –
2: Subject to the claims-paying ability of the insurance
3: company. Of the insurance company, right. Subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. And granted, the states do give some protection through the state guarantee fund uh, for most, not all, but most um, annuities. It's not a huge amount. Um, depending on how much income you need, most states will protect up to two hundred and fifty dollars to $300,000 of annuity payments so uh, it's it's not a massive amount especially for people who might need to go out and buy a five hundred thousand six hundred thousand seven hundred thousand dollars spia if that insurance company went under theoretically the value of the remaining interest payments might be well above the insured value and they won't get all of their their payments so that is a very real risk so when we help clients buy a lifetime stream of guaranteed income, we favor very, very well capitalized, highly rated, low TSR ratio. And I've talked about that ratio in the past. Low TSR ratio companies. But private equity companies are huge in our industry. Unfortunately, private equity which I have little to no respect for. And someone sent me a link, Chris, I'll share with you. I downloaded the book. I haven't read it yet, but it's the, the guy loved the book. And it's he said it was eye-opening on private equity and what they're all about, not necessarily pertaining to just the purchase of insurance companies, but what they're all about and what they truly do to the companies they buy and how they're really representing their investors Not necessarily the clients of the companies they're buying. And that's what scares me with private equity-owned insurance companies. I don't trust them. They're in existence for the investors in private equity. And they're trying to find arbitrage and ways to game the system and make tens and millions and hundreds of millions in profit for their investors. And they've warmed to life insurance companies. And many people, myself included, but many people much smarter than I am, are trying to raise this concern. And the regulators slowly are rising to this at the federal level, which is surprising because who regulates insurance, Paul? Uh, Pete? Jesus. Chris?
2: That would be states, Harvey. States. Who? I don't know, I thought we were using random names. Don't think it's late. My mind
3: is fried. And yes, I screw up names, folks. If you're a long time podcast listener, you know this to be true. With the best screw up name ever, where I called Chris Piss. And why did I do that?
2: Well, you were staring at Paul and I, or Peter and I at the same time. Peter, see, I
3: was staring at Peter.
2: And decided to bring it together. Chris and
3: I and Peter, the old estate planning attorney, were recording the podcast in person. And I'm staring at Peter, talking to Peter, and turned to talk to Chris, and for some reason called him piss. And in my mind, it was half Pete, half Chris. Piss. Made perfect sense.
2: Oh, but yeah. It it's, always does.
3: That's the way my brain thinks. Okay, back to this. So I am very hesitant about utilizing a private equity-owned insurance company for a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. These companies, though, because they are, they want your money, they want your premiums, and they love annuities and insurance companies because it's sticky assets. You put your money in annuities, you generally can't get the money out. If you buy a single, excuse me, if you buy a um, MIGA multi-year guaranteed annuity, they know they kind of get your money for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, however long of a term you bought on that MIGA, and they'll put very high penalties for you to prevent you from cashing in in early it's sticky they love it same thing with life insurance so they're buying up a lot of these insurance companies in a way to get your premiums pay you some interest but hopefully invest those dollars and they move their operations as the TSR ratio people have shown me and we've talked on the podcast before they move their operations overseas to the Cayman Islands or Bermuda where they no longer have to use SAP accounting, but they can use GAAP accounting, which allows them to further muddy the waters, to leave lower reserves, to give them more money to invest. And as the TSR ratio shows, they invested a lot in highly leveraged, very risky assets. Now insurance agents who don't know any better on this, or the wholesalers who push these insurance products, Hate When people talk about this, they say we're ignorant, we don't know what we're doing, that the ratings agencies has given them high ratings, which makes me laugh because the collateralized mortgage obligations or CMOs that caused the 08 housing crisis were mostly rated what, Chris?
2: Mostly rated A.
3: Yeah, mostly rated investment grade mm-hmm. A. And those things blew up as worthless pieces of you-know-what. So I put as much faith in the ratings agencies as as I would in, I don't know, I don't know the saying that I'm trying to come up with, but y'all fill it in. So where do you find out if they're owned by private equity? That's the problem. There is no, I I think the regulators, the state regulators, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, they should mandate the ownership structure of these companies needs to be out there and delivered to clients plainly, right up front is private equity in any way, shape, or form involved with this annuity? But they don't do that. So you're really gonna have to rely on the agent selling it to you to do the research and tell you. But you should also tell your wife, if you need to buy a single premium immediate annuity, here are some insurance companies you should consider. Do not chase the highest yield, because, Chris, who is, in all honesty, think about this, folks. Who is going to pay more, Chris, to entice you to put money to them? A A++, 150, 200-year-old, mutually owned insurance company based in the United States with nothing overseas, with a rock-solid balance sheet, what if they were going to pay you for a $500,000 SPIA? I'm just making this number up, folks. A $500,000 SPIA, they're willing to give you or your wife as your survivor $50,000 a year for the rest of your life. Just making these numbers up. Or if you were a private equity-owned, Bermuda-based with high-risk assets, very poor ratings, if any at all, was also going to pay $50,000. Who do you think most people are going to hire, Chris?
2: Well, of course, they're going to go with the old reliable, we'll call them.
3: Right. So to entice your money, the crappy private equity-owned insurance company is going to have to pay more. And that can muddy the waters. If you're buying a SPIA, just don't look at, oh, my God. I got this quote, but that insurance company is going to give me $10,000 more. My agent is brilliant. He found a lifetime stream of income $10,000 higher than this company. I'm going to go with the higher money. Just for for the
2: record, it probably won't be 20% more.
3: No, I'm just giving this as an example. So do recognize you shouldn't just go for the highest income. But if you truly are worried, listener... Start doing your research on the companies you would want your wife to consider. And put it in writing for her. Say, hey, these are the companies that I would consider. And don't chase highest yield when it comes to buying a lifetime stream of income. Now, I soften my hatred of private equity companies buying insurance companies when it comes to multi-year guaranteed annuities, especially if you are purchasing one that is clearly below your state guarantee fund protection amounts. Again, to entice you, these private equity-owned insurance companies will generally pay more on the MIGA front. And if your state is going to insure 250,000 of your dollars in a MIGA, they're not gonna insure the interest. But if they're gonna insure your principal of $250,000, and you're only going to put 150000 in. you got plenty of cushion. And you're not buying a long-term 8, 9, 10 or plus year MIGA, but a 2, 3, a 4-year MIGA, maybe even a 5-year. I'd be a little more soft and, and would have no problem with someone using a private equity company there. But a lifetime stream of guaranteed income? Absolutely not. It's not easy to find. There's no... The, the regulators could easily make this easy to find by saying, hey, you must disclose before the sale is even made or the discussion is even given. You must disclose to the person if who, who owns this company, what's it structured as, and does private equity own it? But they don't mandate that. So you're going to have to either do your own research or just limit your spears to a handful of companies. The final thing that I want to give mention to are fraternal insurance companies. He doesn't mention that. He's just keying in on private equity. A fraternal company exists similar to a mutually owned insurance company. And all you Vanguardians, you know Vanguard is a mutual company. So all of you investing in Vanguard products are mutually kind of the owners. And that's what a mutual insurance company. They don't exist for stockholders whether they're public stockholders or private stockholders. But a stock-based insurance company is behoven. Is it behoven or behoven? Beholden. Oh, so it's neither. Or is it neither?
2: <laughs> that could go either way. <laughs> or
3: either way. <laughs> <laughs> See? So they're not beholden to a mutual company. Is not beholden to the shareholders. But a stock-based or private equity-based are beholden to the stockholders. But there's also fraternals, which are similar to mutual. But the uh, ownership, if you will, it's generally a fraternal for a smaller or, or a more niche, not all the time, but a more niche group of people. It might be. I know of a couple that, that might be geared towards women or geared towards others. I just know a woman one right now. Um, But that's called a fraternal. They tend to have very, very, very strong balance sheets. And they tend to manage their books and their finances very strongly. Because they exist solely for the benefit of their members. But there's a huge risk of fraternals they do not participate in the state guarantee funds. And if your fraternal goes under your SOL, literally. And I'm torn on this because there's fraternals out there that have wonderful balance sheets. But I struggle on if you should buy a lifetime stream of guaranteed income from them because there's no backstop, none whatsoever. But there's some fraternals that are so well-known Thriving for Lutherans is a fraternal, folks. You don't get any state guarantee protection with a Thrivent product. Not to the best of my knowledge. It's a fraternal. But their balance sheet is rock solid. So it's a tough call. But keep that in mind with fraternals. You should be asking your agent, is this a fraternal? Because if it is, there is no state guarantee protection. They might have great payouts or a great balance sheet, but you need to know going into this, got no backstop if something goes wrong. But I'm so torn on that because ever since I got involved with the TSR ratio folks, and if you're an insurance agent, y'all need to join that organization, individuals you can't join, pay their fee and learn. I have learned so much from them. I may disagree with some of what they do, on their annuity side, but I have learned so much on the hokey BS that these private equity companies are doing and the hokeyness on relying on the ratings agencies. If you are selling insurance, you best know the products you are offering and their ownership structure, their books, how financed they are, don't rely on what Moody's or Fitch or S&P is saying. They're the same idiots who gave collateralized mortgage obligations an A-plus rating in 07. We all know how that ended in 08. got to do your due diligence. Individuals, it's going to be hard for you to do this research. You don't have access to those tools. But you now have knowledge of the damn questions you should be asking your insurance agent. Anything you want to add to that, Paul?
2: Chris? no i think it's a good idea to look beyond just those simple ratings and and uh you know you kind of mentioned it in passing but one way to mitigate this is actually engage with multiple insurance companies kind of a diversification approach you don't have to buy you know one big annuity you could kind of spread it out now um you know, that adds complexity and more paperwork, but that's something that could be done to help mitigate some of this concern for people.
3: Absolutely. Even if you got some of the style companies, notice I'm not really giving their names, uh, although I think anybody looking for a lifetime stream of income, one company you should sh- do your due diligence on, New York Life. I'm not a New York Life agent, but it's a well-financed Company, highly rated. And there's many others, not just New York Life. But just, I would recommend to this listener, start doing your homework now. Don't leave it to your wife and tell her to consider these two, three, four, five companies when you, if you do, if I die and you need this income and find an agent ahead of time that you might want to send her to or an advisor you might want to send her to. Oh, and go to this agency or call this company. They'll help you. Mm That's what I would suggest you put in place now. Yeah. Um, do we have time to get to the uh new question of the was it yeah, the new question of the week as as well or not?
2: No, we probably ra- need to wrap this one. Okay. Kind of lingered on on that last answer. Well, it's because you, it's you important. Just go on and I mean and it was on. important stuff to point out to people because it's not something that uh, a lot of people think they need to worry about because they're thinking, Oh, insurance company, they're safe, right? They're You know, you don't hear a lot of horror stories, but they're infrequent, but they do happen. And when they happen, a lot of times it can happen to many all at the same time. Kind of like what we saw, you know, 2008 kind of a situation. So, um,
3: and I do want to give one more shout out to listeners mm -hmm. and advisors who might be listening to this quote unquote, commission free annuities are growing in popularity And I'm torn on them. I love them and I hate them. I think they're being misused. And I'll share this when we come to our annuity show in June. But I have used, quote unquote, commission free annuities a lot. I use two wholesalers. I don't necessarily look favorably upon either wholesaler. I think their advice they give might be a little bit biased. But I have noticed they're using more and more and more private equity insurance companies. Private equity insurance companies are not stupid. They're going where the money is. And they're coming out with these fee-based, as if they're this altruistic, pure as the driven snow, their poop don't stink type insurance companies. Oh, it's a fee-based. It must be beautiful. The evil commission isn't there. New York Life pays a commission. Oh, you don't want to use that. It's an evil commission. I've got this beautiful, the, pure as the driven snow. I don't earn any fee on this at all. Of course, I'm going to, any commission on this, but I'm going to charge you a fee till the cows come home on it. And they're pawning this off as being better for you. I wouldn't touch some of those fee-based products with a 10-foot hole. Be very careful. You advisors out there who are just buying into this fee-based hype on annuities and you don't know an annuity from a bread box. You're just going to rely on the wholesaler to give you all this information. You are a fiduciary. You need to learn annuities. And you must evaluate commission and commission-free and give the two of them to your client. Because many times for all these reasons that I shared with you, there's some damn good commission-based annuities by companies that I would sleep with in a hobby, not literally, but I would sleep with a hotbeat, trusting my lifetime income with, and I wouldn't touch some crap-ass annuities on this fee-based, pla- excuse me, commission-free platform. And yes, you can see the anger in me coming out at this. You advisors who are just blindly buying into this commission-free, and you... Do-it-yourselfers who have bought into this hype that a commission on an annuity is somehow unethical and, and, and help me out here, Chris, with some more adjectives.
2: Evil, cringy, but whatever.
3: Evil, whatever. cringy, whatever. <laughs> you do-it-yourselfers who are buying into that, you're also buying into the hype of commission-free annuities. Now, that said... There's a lot of commission-free annuities I love, but I'm shocked at some of the companies offering commission-free annuities now, and I owe it all to everything I'm learning under the TSR ratio. Don't buy into this hype, and if you're an advisor, you want to be a true fiduciary? There is nothing wrong with a commission annuity, and you owe it to your clients, It's not just who's giving the highest payout or if I'm making an evil commission. And I don't get that for the life of me. Commission, evil, fee for the rest of your life, good. They're both rodents. One's just a rat and the other's a squirrel. But they're both rodents. Whether you buy a commission product, which has the moniker of a rat, or a commission-free product, which looks like a puppy squirrel with a a cute little tail, they're both an annuity and they're both sucking money from your client. You owe it to your client and you owe it to yourself to look at both. And you do-it-yourselfers. You owe it to yourself to not just buy into the commission-free hype and also look at commission-based single premium media annuities. And you know what, listeners? I called one of the biggest wholesalers of commission, quote-unquote, commission-free annuities. And I said, I'd like to see a list of your SPIA products, please. What do you think they told me, Chris? They didn't have one? Yeah, they don't have one. I said, why not? Well, it's really hard to charge them. They don't have them. Because how can an advisor who charges an AUM fee charge on a product with no account balance? And let's not get into 204 of the security. This particular wholesale, which is the largest in our industry, has no commission-free SPIA. They don't exist. They have tons of annuities that will give you a withdrawal benefit because they're so easy for them to charge their AUM fee on. And we'll share more in June on this. So that talk about a teaser. But anyways, I'm sorry I'm, I'm getting so passionate on this, Chris. And I'm keeping us long, and I'll shut up now. But please, listeners, when you're buying an annuity, make sure the person you're talking to is honest, is trustworthy, and knows what the heck it is they're talking about. And you advisors, a lot of you don't know diddly squat about insurance because you're an AUM driven advisor and you could never earn any money on a damn annuity. So annuity, bad. Just hate it. Annuity, bad. Why? Well, I can't charge on it, but I'm not going to tell my clients that. I'm just going to tell them it's it's expensive and there's commissions. But now all of a sudden annuity, good, because I can charge on it. And you're putting too much confidence in the wholesalers who are offering these quote unquote commission-free annuities and Chris, wrap this up, please, because I'll never shut up. Why do I always say, quote, unquote, commission-free? And then you can wrap this up.
2: Well, first of all, the wholesaler is getting a commission, so there's still a commission in there. And if you're going to apply some other fee under you know, a commission under another name, uh, is it really commission-free? Are you getting the advantages of it? But embedded inside the wholesale side, there's still commissions going on.
3: Exactly. That's why I refuse to call them commission-free annuities. And the industry is starting to wise up to that, and they're calling them, quote-unquote, fee-based annuities. Yeah. Because commission-free implies there's absolutely no sales commission. You advisors who are relying on these wholesalers just point blank to do all the work for you. They even open the damn annuity for you, if you understand how these wholesalers work. They earn a damn commission. You don't. They do. They do. So, how is your advice as an advisor somehow conflicted if you earned the commission, but the company you are relying on to allegedly do their due diligence, somehow their advice is not going to be conflicted, even though they don't earn diddly squat unless they convince you to sell this annuity to your client so they can earn, you ready for this, folks? A commission. And when I asked one of the wholesalers to please share with me what their commission was, what did they tell me, Chris? No.
2: They don't have to. you
3: not going to tell me. I wanted to know the commission of every annuity they are going to recommend to me. And more importantly, I said, the commission of all the annuities you didn't recommend to me. Nope. Wouldn't give me that. I can get that from a commission-based wholesaler easily. You recommended this annuity. What am I going to be paid on it? And what will I be paid on all these other annuities you didn't recommend to me? And they'll give that to me in a heartbeat. But for some reason, this company didn't want them. I don't know. Anyways, much more of this in June. I just don't want people to get lured into this commission-free and commission argument over income annuities. It's a red herring. You guys got to do your own homework. You do it yourself first. Anyways, that's
2: it. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for sticking with us on another Q&A show. Uh, Like I said at the top of the show, if you want to send in your own questions for consideration, send them to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast, and he'll put you in his uh, – satchel full of questions or whatever he's using these days to sort through things satchel yeah.
3: you you're implying i carry this around with me and well, i don't
2: know you print all this stuff out put it in a bag or a box or... I,
3: I try not to print anymore but i do keep them in my podcast mm-hmm. uh my <laughs> so, yeah, it is time to wrap up in uh, my email folders yeah
2: yep so uh we do appreciate everybody listening and we'll be back next week with a brand new
1: show you have listened to jim on the radio Read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556.
0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.